Our reading comes from John 12, starting with verse 20 through 50. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told, in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls onto the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said and had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment in this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you stay? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes it. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may, you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has, a blind, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me and only me, but it's the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come to the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know this command leads to the eternal life. 
So whenever I say this, just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anna. Beautifully read. I wonder if you've ever considered that every, um, every week you come to church or go on online church, that you come and you actually get to consider the most incredible moment that's ever happened in human history. Maybe if you've been in church for a while, the story of the gospel, Jesus Christ died, rose again. It can get familiar, right? But just pause with me for a minute. This is the most essential moment that has ever happened in this world, that will ever happen in this world. In fact, it's probably the most incredible moment in all of existence because it's the very reason that existence was created, was that Yahweh, the infinite and eternal God, would come into this world, take on flesh and blood and walk this world around, and he would walk all the way to this single point of dying and rising. There is nothing more important than the cross and resurrection of Jesus, absolutely nothing, and it should blow you away every time you come to it. It's the center point of Christianity. It's the center point of this entire world. And John is all about that. We're in chapter 12, but the first 11 chapters, Jesus is constantly going around healing people, doing stuff, making, making a scene. And people are like, yeah, man, this is the Jesus. Let's get him. Let's, let's, let's exalt him as king. Let's make it happen. And he always says this one line, my hour has not yet come. That, that's how he refers to his death and resurrection. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour is this moment, the most important moment in all of history. It hasn't yet come. And yet we hit chapter 12 here, have a look with me, verse 20, 23 even, Jesus replied, the hour has come. Here we are. This is it. This is the moment that we have all literally been waiting with bated breath for because this is the moment that every sinful soul has yearned for. As Alex said, the only thing that can satisfy our souls. And you would think that the most important moment in all of human history would have some serious fanfare and build-up, right? You think about your history textbook, and you think about the kind of stuff that happened at the most important moments in history, and you're like, these were some serious times. Well, what about Jesus? What about this time as he comes to the cross? You know, again, you might be familiar with these stories, but just suspend your familiarity for a moment. You know, you've got the Son of God going to give his life for the whole world, and how is that moment ushered in? Well, last week, if you tune into online church, he's reclining at dinner and he is anointed. That's what we do for kings in the, in the, in the scriptures. We anoint them. We, you know, that sounds kingly and wonderful, right? Yeah, cool. All right. We can get around this. But how is he anointed? Well, he's hanging out at dinner with all of these male friends and this woman walks into the room with a big pot of perfume and pours it on him and then grabs her hair, which would be a very shameful thing to do, might I add, and just starts wiping him with her hair. If you're sitting at that dinner table, you're thinking, what the heck is going on, right? It's, it's kind of weird. And yet that's our Jesus. Okay, he goes from there and he makes a triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the city that is his kingdom. You're like, okay, I can get around this. You know, what, how does he do it? Comes in on a donkey. I've seen Shrek. The donkey is not the hero of that story. Well, he kind of is actually. So I take that. Anyways, he's not glorious or majestic, right? It's like going over to the Mossman Yacht Club and just turning up in your dinghy being like, hey guys, how you going? It's ridiculous. But that's our Jesus. And this very moment, the one where he actually, Jesus' eyes open goes, okay, we're here. How does he know I'm about to die? Have a look, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among us, among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, 
Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come. Like, it's just this couple of little verses. These Greek dudes, not mentioned once before, not mentioned once after. There's no, I couldn't find any prophecies in the Old Testament that were like, it'll be the Greek guys. I mean, Greek people are amazing, but like there was nothing special about them here, right? It's just, it's just this little tiny obscure moment that you would have completely not known about if John hadn't written it down here. Isn't that bizarre? We're talking about the most, the crowning moment of all of existence comes because some Greek dudes came and talked to Jesus. Well, if you have spent any time reading the scriptures, if you know Jesus at all, you know it's not as bizarre as it sounds because that is Jesus. That is our Savior. He is the Word who made all things, who holds all things together. Right now, the reason you aren't falling apart into non-existence is because Jesus is holding you together. He is that glorious God. And yet every moment of the gospel is this quiet, humble path to death. That's our Jesus. That's your Jesus. And that's beautiful. There's nothing quite like Jesus because he stands in complete contrast to the world. He's the one who could demand anything and bring anything towards himself. He has the power that made universes. And yet he chooses to disdain the attitude of the powers in our world that want to exalt themselves, and instead he humbles himself. This is unexpected. This is the unexpected way of Jesus. And this is important because it's not just an interesting Bible fact. It's not just like, you know, sometimes when you're in a Bible study and someone's like, oh, would you look at this? There's a nice little parallel from verse 3 to verse 11. And everyone writes down in their notebook, how cool was that fun fact that didn't change our life? That's not one of the we're talking about right here. We are talking about the Jesus who calls us to come and follow him. Let me make it as clear as I can. Anyone who wants to know the true and living God, anyone who wants to be forgiven from their sin, anyone who wants to live with God in his house forever, must follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus isn't what you would expect. He's not calling you to power and glory and might and influence and wealth and comfort. He's got something completely different in store for you. That's what I think John 12 is talking about. We're going we're gonna to see three unexpected marks of the way of Jesus that if you're willing to sit in honesty before the Lord, I think it's going to challenge you because it's certainly been challenging me this week. So let's get into it. Have your Bibles open. If you haven't got it open, now's the time to open it. The first thing that I think that shines out of the way of Jesus in this passage is that life blossoms in death. Life blossoms in death. You know, Jesus is about to take his kingdom. And so the expectation, we've kind of covered it, is like, okay, dudes, it's the moment. Grab your swords. Let's rally the troops. Let's get into Jerusalem. Let's kill all those dang Romans. We don't like them. Let's bring the kingdom in, right? But the very first words that Jesus says after my hour has come, look, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The gospel is incredible. It's about the infinite God taking on flesh to bring you life through his death. If there was anyone that didn't deserve to die, it's Jesus. But there's this beautiful irony that just shines through in John. Have a look at the way he describes his hour in verse 23. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be 
glorified. Like this is the moment where everyone's going to see Jesus in his glory. This is the moment where everyone's going to want to throw their praise upon him. And yet this is the moment where he is killed brutally and tortured. You, You go down a little bit further to verse 32. And Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You know, lifted up. When I'm, when I'm exalted, when I'm just like, you know, everyone's on ground level and I'm up so that they can all see me in all my... Sp- no, Jesus is lifted up in death, brutal death. And that's the moment when he draws all people to himself. That's the moment when sinful hearts are softened and brought into life. That's the moment where sin is completely and utterly paid for. The moment of his death is actually the moment of his glory, and it's actually the moment of your life. Life blossoms from death. Um, When I was a teenager, I'd been a Christian for a little while. I stumbled across this album of hymns, and like, you know, it's not really a cool teenage thing to do to go and listen to hymns. Like, anyone? Yeah, okay. Um, Ascend the Hill, you ever heard them before? probably old now and I'm uncool to the young but they they did like all these hymns and they like redid them in modern music and it was actually a really big part of my teenage faith it was really helpful there was one hymn that really just consistently spoke to me and it was the hymn oh love that will not let me go and there's this one verse that just came to me as I was reading this because I think it's it's the beauty of the gospel the beauty of the way of Jesus it'll come up on the screen this verse oh cross that liftest up my head I dare not ask to fly from thee I lay in dust's life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. Jesus is the seed that hanging on a cross falls to the ground and dies, and it's from his blood that soaks the earth that your life comes forward. Isn't that beautiful? Life that will endless be. I mean, I could stop right there, right? Because that's, that's it. That's the moment that we have lived for because that's the moment where we find life. But I think the reason this is really important for us to hear is because this isn't just the story of Jesus. This is your story. This isn't just the pattern of how you were saved. This is the pattern of how you will live. Because Jesus talks about himself. I'm the seed, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna produce many. But he goes on in verse 25 and speaks directly to you and to me and it's a hard word. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it while... Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must, important, follow me. And where I am, uh, and, and sorry, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. It was Bonhoeffer that said, when Christ calls a person, he calls them come and die. Let's sit with you for a minute. We love grace as Christians, and rightly so. God has lavished you in love for nothing that you've done entirely because of what he's done. All you have to do is come and say yes. And yet, when Christ calls someone, he calls them to come and die. Are you ready to die for Jesus? Now, I don't think that means all of us are going to go head over to the Middle East, become missionaries, and get in a place where someone might murder us for our faith. I think God will call some of us to that, and I pray for that because the whole world needs to know this life-changing message. But there are many of us who God is going to call to live in Sydney and to live our whole lives here, living and ministering and witnessing to the people around us. I don't think this is a call to physical death, but this is a call to the way of life that Jesus lived for us. And it's the way of dying. 
It's the way of giving yourself away for the cause of Christ and for others. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the sense of, well, Jesus puts it better than anyone ever could. You have to hate your own life to find the life that Jesus wants to give you. And it's strong. But did you notice when he says, you must hate your life in this world, this tiny, small, temporary, little breath of existence that you have right now, you've got to hate that tiny little moment so that you might have eternal life, eternal forever, eternal in beauty, eternal in every way that matters. Jesus is calling us to die. And I think most of us, if you if like Jesus, you kind of get this. You get that God wants to not just let you live the way you used to live. He wants you to live in a new way. I think, I think this is something familiar to us. But this is a word that God's just been speaking to me and battering me around for the past couple of weeks. I feel like every time I open my Bible, it's a different passage. I'm like heading over to Zechariah to try and get away from it. And he's like, bam, there it is. It's just, anyways, but... I think that we get it. I think we understand that we need to live for Jesus, but it's this big grand ideal. Yes, die for Christ. But so often the day-to-day, hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment life that we live really doesn't seem much different to the rest of the world around us. Yes, Jesus, he's allowed to change our morals, to change our idea of right and wrong. He's allowed to ask us to give money to church and to take some of our time so that we might follow him. But what does it truly mean to die to yourself? What does it truly mean to live on a Tuesday afternoon in Neutral Bay as someone who hates their own life and wants to pursue the life that only Jesus can give? Here's what I think God's been teaching me. We need to reclaim the spiritual discipline of self-denial. We need to reclaim the spiritual discipline of self-sacrifice. And again, not in the big, grand, hey, we're going to film it as a cool testimony kind of self-denial and self-sacrifice, but the daily 10 minutes in front of right now, how will you deny yourself to love Christ more? And it's not something that's going to potentially change the world, right? So if I was to deny myself by not getting takeout 19 times a week, um, that's not going to be the moment where all of my friends and family become Christians and give their life to Christ, I mean, like, please, Lord, let it be, but it's, it's, it's not why we're doing it. The reason we practice self-denial and self-sacrifice and we hear Jesus' words here is not for others out there, but for our own souls. This is where Christ forms us into the people that we were meant to be. And in fact, I think so many of us lack the joy that Christ offers because we're still seeking the joy that is found in this world and not in him. I think this is a hard word for any Christian in all of time, but especially a hard word for us. Because it's, it's easier to deny yourself and to sacrifice when you already don't have a lot. If you're living in poverty and clinging to Jesus as your only hope, you're happy to give whatever little you have because Jesus has been everything for you. But for you and I who has literally everything at our fingertips, it's called a smartphone, right? It's, it's a way bigger call to say, hey, you actually don't, need to have everything all the time when you want it. And actually, it's a good thing for your eternal spiritual good to say no to yourself, not just once off and every now and again, but to make it a habit of who we are. I think this extends to the big stuff, but as well as the small stuff. I think it's how often do you spend your money and your time just doing the things that you always do because you want to do them? For me, I've been deeply convicted of my coffee consumption. 
yeah, feel free to, you know, rebuke me if you see me with my third coffee in hand, right? But, like, but you know what I mean? Like, it's so easy because I have the money. Caffeine doesn't affect me. Seriously, it doesn't. I can have 10 coffees and just go to sleep like that. It's fine. Um, you know, and anything I want, I can have. And so I, I'll just drink coffee. I'll just drink coffee. I'll just drink coffee. And me not having coffee is not going to change the world. But as I practice this discipline of denying myself, I start to find my joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. Think about your takeout. Think about the way that you budget your money. Think about what home you plan on buying. Think about what job you have. Think about everything that makes your life your life. And go, am I doing this because it's what I want? Or because the world suggests it's what I should have? Or have I made a calculated decision to heed the calling of Christ, to die to myself and to live for him? Does that make sense? It's big, it's weighty, but it's a journey that we can only take together. Um, And I think the important part of it is this is where the persuasive witness of Christians comes out. People don't want your Jesus when you look like them and you just have morals that are harder to follow. People want your Jesus when they see that you don't actually have all the stuff that they have, but you have a joy that they don't. People want your Jesus when they realize that those internal, deeper things that Alex was talking about actually aren't satisfied by this world, but for some reason you have something different about you. That's why we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Christ. The way of life is through death. The second thing that shines out of this passage to me is that light shines from darkness. Light shines from darkness. Jesus goes on, he's talking about his death, and he gets to this part in verse 30 where he says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. And this is the important part. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And a little bit later, he kind of ties those themes in with this theme of of light and darkness. And that's important. This is why I love John. He gets me. He gets the angst of my soul. He gets the poetry that I long for. So I'm all about John. If you're not a poetic person, just bear with me for a minute, right? But, But these themes of light and darkness are so beautiful because you see this proclamation that Jesus makes that this world will be judged and the ruler of this world will be judged. When I hear world, I just picture like spinning globe in the solar system that is earth, but that's not what the Bible thinks. When the Bible talks about the world, it's referring to people living in sinful rebellion against God. And so Jesus is talking about when I'm lifted up on that cross, that's the final judgment upon all of sinful humanity. And when he talks about the ruler of this world, he's talking about Satan and the powers of darkness. This is the dark powers of this world. He's saying, when I'm lifted up and actually killed and crushed by the powers of darkness, that's the very moment that the powers of darkness have crushed themselves because my death is their defeat. But guess, there's only one person that's going to be risen back to life in this situation, and it isn't the powers of darkness. It's Jesus. It's this beautiful way that Jesus is just capturing that the darkness and and death will come to him in an unexpected way. But that's actually the darkness and death being dealt with. And life and light will shine out from him. And that's, that's the picture of the Bible. The cross is the center point of all of history because it's all been finished. Those were his final words on the cross. It is finished. And it's true. But if you look at me, there's a little bit of tension, kind of confusing. You go down to verse 35. 
And he starts talking about light and darkness. He says, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus, which one is it? Are you going to crush the powers of darkness conclusively at the cross? Or are we going to be stuck in darkness when you leave us? Like, which one is it? Well, the answer is both. It's kind of annoying that the Bible does that, but it's actually the beauty of the Bible. Because we don't want a God that we can stick in a box. We want a God who defies our expectations. And what you've got going on here is the cross is the definitive moment where evil, sin, and death have been conclusively dealt with. And yet there's a time to come when Jesus returns, and that's when he's going to usher in the new kingdom. And right now we sit in this nice little messy middle place where the, the pronouncement has been made, victory has been won, but the enemy's still got teeth, right? And, and Satan's going down, but he wants to drag as many of us with him as he can. And so we find ourselves in this messy middle place, and the word that Jesus has for you is to walk in his way, and that is the way of light. What did he say? Verse 35, 36, Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become the children of light. That's you. If you have met Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, you are a child of the light. And it should kind of scare you a little bit. Because in John, when we talk about light, Jesus consistently says, I am the light of the world. And now he's saying, you come to me, I'm going to make you a child of the light. So you guys, you're now little lights of the world. And guess what? I'm leaving. So you're going to be the only light left. So when people look at you, what do they see? They should be seeing the shining light of the perfect Son of God. Are you scared by that? Because I'm doing a terrible job. When people look at me, it's probably a bit more gray than shining bright light of the glory of the Lord. And yet that's what Jesus is calling us to. And the reason this is part of the unexpected way of Jesus is because this world is pervasive in darkness. And it's really, really difficult to shine as a light for Christ. But it's only when light is in the darkness that it shines. Contrast is what makes the light shine out. And so you and I are called to sit in this messy middle place and to consistently live in a way that brings the light of Jesus out into a dark world. The way Jesus shone as the light of the world, he, he hung out with sinners without taking the sin upon himself. I think for you and I, we get that. We need to be a part of the world. We don't want to retreat from the world. Sometimes churches do that. It's like, hey, let's get this cool little holy huddle. We'll hang out in our church building. We won't talk to any non-Christians. Bad, not good. But the alternative is that we try and be so much like the world because we want to win the world that we actually don't shine at all. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't compromise. He was with sinners with compassion and love in his eyes and never took on sin. That's what he calls us to. He intentionally resisted the praises of humans. You know, he could have had everything, right? He could have been the king of the world. And he is, but in a funny way. He could have had it all. But instead, he like intentionally fled into obscurity. And so many of us are just clamoring for people to praise us, to affirm us, to show us that we're worthwhile. But Jesus, he didn't need the praises of others because he had the praise of God. That's the light that shines out in a world that demands praise. He could have had all the comfort of life. Again, he's the king of glory and of grace. And yet he intentionally just wandered around dusty desert Israel and Galilee with like a couple of pieces of clothes to his name. Because he didn't find his security in what he had. He found his security in his God. That's what it means to be the light of the world. And that's what it means for you and I. Do you guys remember those like, little bracelets that people used to wear? The WWJD, what would Jesus do? 
Did anyone have one? You're like, there's no shame in this room. Tim Cargill, you're my man. Oh, there's too many of you. It's great. It's great. I did not. I was not a Christian at the time, but yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I think it's a good idea. Not, not a good fashion statement, but like a good question to ask. But I think we need to change a little bit. It's not so much what would Jesus do, but more what would Jesus do if he was me? I think Jesus is the eternal son of God who died for the sins of the world, and I don't see too many of those out in the church right now. I see a bunch of ordinary humans that have been called to Jesus, yet at the same time, we're called to be conformed into the image of the son. So we, we should look like Jesus. We should have the life that Jesus lived in some senses, but we aren't the divine son of God. Where do we find the middle ground? Well, it's like, what would Jesus do if he was Nick Wood called to be a pastor in Neutral Bay? That's the question I want to be asking myself. How can I be like the light of the world, but in this body and this calling that Jesus has given me? And that's the question you need to ask as you grapple with your God. Where has he called you in this world? And how has he called you to live for him in the place that he's put you? And how will you shine like Jesus? The uncompromising values of who he was, yes, but in your context. And that's what we need to reclaim. But I worry that too many of us have found the dimmer switch. You know, in those, those lights in rooms where you can kind of just turn them down a little bit? I think, again, we've, we've slowly been lulled by the lies of the world at times to, to, to just dim our light a little bit because shining in a world of darkness attracts attention. And that's uncomfortable. And living a faithful witness to Jesus can sometimes bring some opposition and difficulty. And yet, Jesus calls us to shine and when we shine, that's the witness that we long for our friends and family to come to Christ. When they see in us something different, something life-changing. Light's only meaningful if it shines in darkness. So that's the way of Jesus. It's the way of light. Will you choose to follow him in all of his glory and not this world in all of its glory? The last one, and we'll roll through this quickly even though it's really tricky, is that belief is more than seeing. Belief is more than seeing. I think it's one of the trickier parts of the Bible. You go down to verse 37 with me, and you get some weird verses, but Scripture is good because it teaches us beyond our own perceptions. What we see here is that even verse 37, after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still wouldn't believe in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah that, verse 40, he blinded their eyes, he hardened their hearts so that they wouldn't see, so that they wouldn't understand, because if they did, they would turn and be saved. So really what it's saying here is these people didn't believe in Jesus so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, that God would stop them from believing in Jesus. So God has intentionally blinded and hardened some people so that they would not come to Christ. Does that make you uncomfortable? I'm a little uncomfortable just saying it that strongly. And yet here it is. Here it is in scripture. Now here's, here's the truth that runs through all of scripture. All of humanity is completely and utterly polluted with sin and that left to our own devices, we will always choose the alternative to God. That's just reality. It'll look different from person to person, but we will always choose what our sinful hearts long for and turn away from the God who made us. That, that's reality. And so the scriptures talk about John 3. We need to be born again. We need to actually have the external power of God soften us in Ezekiel 36, we need our hearts of stone to be replaced with hearts of flesh. And this is good news because only God can do it and he does do it. And so every single person sitting here who knows God is a living, walking miracle that God has raised you to life and changed your heart. 
That's the truth of Scripture, but that's not what this is talking about. And that, that's helpful because this, this fulfillment of Isaiah is specifically talking about this moment in the gospel when Jesus is walking the earth. Why? Well, how did Jesus win salvation for the world? He was murdered. Why was he murdered? Because a bunch of influential Jewish leaders did not like that he was stealing their power. Well, why didn't they just turn to him in faith? Well, because their hearts were hardened and their eyes were blinded. This, this is really how the gospel came about. And this is why it was promised in Isaiah so long ago that God was actually going to do a work amongst these people around Jesus that would lead to his death. But the beautiful thing is God doesn't leave it there. This quote from Isaiah is from Isaiah 6. And as you read on in Isaiah 6, you realize that it's actually a temporary hardening and a temporary blinding. You come with me to Acts 2, and you see the birth of the church. It's wild. There's fire coming down from, from heaven. There's people talking in tongues. Peter gets up. He preaches a cracking sermon where he says, hey, you know how you killed Jesus? He's your God. So you should probably repent about that, right? And everyone goes, well, oh, that's a really good point. We should probably repent about that. The reason that's important is because it's these people, the very people who were hardened and blinded so that Jesus would be crucified, are offered a chance to come and be enfolded in the grace of Jesus only a few years later, or not even years. See, the grace of Jesus is mighty. The gospel is given so that you might believe. Literally, John 20 verse 31 tells you why John wrote his book. It's so that you might believe, and by believing, have life in his name. Jesus wants you to believe, but it's only an act of God that can bring you to life in him. So this is a tricky part of the Bible where we, we have to wrestle with why would God harden and blind some? Isn't that wrong? We need to wrestle with that. But I want to suggest to you that those wrestles are good for our souls because we need to grapple with the godness of God. If you've got a God who you can define in neat, neat statements and nice little boxes, you don't have a God, you have a belief system that you've created. The infinite God who made all things should buck the system and break the box sometimes. And these are the moments where that comes out. And it's uncomfortable but it's good for our souls. But the reason this is so important for us to read is because belief is more than seeing. These guys saw Jesus in the flesh, turned water to wine, he raised someone from the dead, yet they still didn't believe. That should make you uncomfortable too, that even if you were given every, every, every opportunity, still you wouldn't turn to Jesus. And there's a, a verse here that haunts me. Have a look at verse 43. Why did these people not acknowledge the faith that they seemed to have? They loved human praise more than praise from God. That haunts me because I know that's my heart. They loved human praise more than praise from God. So the question I think Jesus is putting before us is, are you willing to follow him to death? Are you willing to give all of yourself to him? Because there's no half-hearted worship. You can't love the praise of men and love the praise of God. You've got to choose. Jesus said, you can only serve one master. Who's it going to be? Will you choose the way of the world or the way of Jesus? And it's really hard to say that because, you know, so many of us are on a journey. This isn't a condemnation as we wrestle with sin and struggle in our faithfulness. But it's, it's a call about who has your allegiance? Who are you living for? And are you willing to lay everything down in the cause of Jesus? You can't follow Jesus and the world. You can't have one foot in both lanes. If you see a fork in the road and you try and put one foot in each and keep walking, you're going to do the splits, it's going to get uncomfortable. You need to be all in for Jesus. 
So I guess that's what I'm trying to call us to here, that we wouldn't walk in the way of the world, that we'd walk in the way of Jesus, the way of dying to ourselves. Yes, it's difficult, but it's where we find the life that's truly life. The way of light, where we shine in a world where, yes, we'll receive opposition and difficulty, but we'll be the children of the light. Be the people who don't love the praises of people, but love the praise of God. I believe that God can do more than we ask or imagine. So I want to stop and just ask that the Spirit would just transform us as the band jumps up, because only He can do this. Let's pray. Father God, you are the, the one who made all things and who cares so deeply about us, even despite our sin and our rebellion. This church exists 2,000 years after this most important moment in all of existence because your grace is powerful and your spirit is at work. So God, we want to call on you that you might fill us afresh, 6 p.m. Neutral Bay, with your spirit to say no to the desires and the way of life that's put before us so constantly by this world and instead to pursue you and to give all of ourselves to you, holding nothing back. God, for any of us here who aren't yet sure of who you are to us, would you open our eyes rather than blinding them? For any of us who are unsure of who you are, would you not harden our hearts but soften us so that we might see that Jesus truly is the treasure that only, only he can give, that the life that we long for is only found in him. Holy Spirit, would you come with the power that only you have and love us with the love that you have shown us so clearly on the cross. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior.